You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Well, hey there, all you triathlon studs and studettes. This is Coach Brett with another great episode of Zen and the Art of Triathlon, the podcast where we go long on endurance and learn a lot about ourselves along the way. I have a great episode with lots of variety in it. I'm going to tell you about a killer method to build hill training legs. In here? I'm recording my podcast right now, so. (laughs) Okay. My next big race has massive hills, so I go into detail about how to do great hill training. And then later in the training log, I have a couple rides that are unbelievably hot. 104 degrees on the bike computer combined with 60% humidity which leads to a heat index of 145 degrees at one time. And then we have racing drama. As the sport of gravel is still trying to figure itself out, there are a couple of crazy stories about what happened during Unbound that a lot of people don't know about. But because I listen to so much endurance sports interviews and podcasts and read so many articles about it, I end up coming across some real jewels that we <laughs> that we get <laughs> during the sport that will blow your mind. It's some pretty crazy stuff. But anyway, let's go ahead and get started with a little bit about how to train for huge hills. And also before we get too far into this, I should mention that we are about to leave the house on our way to Seattle for a wedding, and I've never been to Seattle. So we're going to try to see the Jimi Hendrix Memorial, because I play guitar, and I'm a MTV kid of the 80s, so he's one of the guitar gods that we worshipped back then, even though he was gone before then. But also, I'm going to try to see the Bruce Lee Memorial, I think. Same, same thing. Kid of the 80s, there was lots of kung fu and karate stuff back then, and Bruce Lee was the one that inspired it all, and both of those are in Seattle. We'll see if we get to fit that in. But anyway, I've also got River and Zoe sitting here with me, and there's some really great pictures of both of them on Instagram. You can check me out on Instagram at Zen Triathlon. Lots of pictures of us doing all kinds of crazy stuff. All right, so the big race that's coming up is a qualifier for Worlds. It's Gravel Worlds, which I assume is in Europe somewhere. They might have it in Italy again. And it's a UCI series and race, but it is a homegrown gravel race right in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And Arkansas is just wonderful with hills, lowland mountains, I mean, Uh, national forests, the gravel roads. It's just all kinds of stuff out there. It's really beautiful. I've been to Arkansas many times for camping and backpacking, but never for bike riding. But I have done plenty of bike riding in the Smoky Mountains, which is part of the Appalachian chain of mountains in East Tennessee. Different mountain range, but very, very similar. So I'm very excited because my experience in these places has been just 
beautiful and it's just an amazingly gorgeous place to be but it will be hot and then also the race will be hilly so what you do when you are getting into a race that you haven't done before and you should just do this anyway if it's been a little while is you look at the elevation profile of the bike and if it's a triathlon of the run Okay. Oh, Emily just came in and th threw at me a whole bunch of vegan stuff. What is this? Sweet potato sticks. Interesting. What do y'all think? Is Zoe sniffing it? Okay. <laughs> Zoe seems to like it. What people tend to do is not train enough for the hills for their race. And then they get in over their head. And the easy way to get around that is to figure out what's the hill situation and the easiest way to do that is download or look at the map with the elevation profile graph of the race course both the hill both the hills on the uh the bike and the run if your swim's got hills in it you know we got we got an issue but anyway and what i tend to do is i look for the worst hills and then i train for those and then if you train for those and you watch your heart rate and your power while you're training for those, then you know what to do on race day. I did this for Ironman Canada, which is in Whistler. And part of the race course was we literally climbed up a mountain on the bike where there was a ski jump at the top of it from the previous Olympics a few years back. It was a legit big climb on the bike and I figured out it was I don't know like 30 minutes and so I did 30 minute hill repeats on the bike using Zwift and figured out what power I could do and what heart rate I could do and still feel fine afterwards because it happened at like an hour into the bike ride on an, on an Ironman so there's a whole lot more to go and then on race day, and I, I think it was like 270 watts. I could hold that. If I hold 270 watts, I knew that when I got to the top, I would, on the coast down, that I would be fully recovered and can continue on and do the rest of the bike ride. And I did. It worked. It worked amazingly well. When I got to the, not even the top of the mountain, you know, two-thirds of the way up, even maybe even halfway, I started passing people that had started climbing it too hard because they didn't look or understand or remember or whatever how long of a hill it was going to be, a mountain, literally, and they overdid it because you just start climbing. You climb it like you would get your hills around, your, uh, around where you live, and that's a totally different situation. So this race in Arkansas is the Highlands Gravel Classic, which I think is funny because it's only on its second year. <laughs> but anyway, it had really good reviews last year, and it is also technical. And I listened to interviews with the pros, no, with the race director, about his goal for the race and how hard it is. I listened to interviews with other people. I listened or watched videos of people riding in that area. I went on Reddit and asked, what's this uh, course like? Hold on, we're gonna wait for River to finish drinking his water. 
<laughs> if you listen to Zen's right, you're going to get dogs. And it's interesting because months ago when we talked about riding there, somebody told me the Arkansas gravel is really chunky, really, really chunky. And also I found out from the, the course and the race director is that this thing is at least 90% gravel. And having done gravel locos and other gravel rides down here in Texas, it's usually about 50% gravel. And so asking around on Reddit, though, I found out that the gravel can be different based on which direction you go from Fayetteville. And if you go west, it's, you know, chunky and it's going to be really slow and difficult. If you go north, it's going to be something. If you go south, it's going to be something and then if you go southeast or wherever the race course is, because some people had done it before, they said it's actually like bedrock slab. You're more into the mountains and it's bedrock slab with kind of like champagne gravel on top. It is not chunky and it is fast. But the thing is, is it's so steep that you do need to have good technical bike skills for going downhill and controlling the bike and also for the really steep climbs you need to have good climbing legs and if it rains that's the other thing i found out that you should always look into uh, about to do a gravel race is what does the gravel turn into if it rains does it do the unbound mud hole or with the sticky peanut butter mud or does it do emily's telling the the google home to play reggae hope it doesn't pick up on the podcast and we get dmca'd yeah, you want some of these organic pup- sweet potato sticks? Are they sweet puppy sticks? Huh? No. And people said that the race course does not turn into mud, slop, and sticky peanut butter mud if it rains. And that's, that's a big deal because if it does that, uh, you need to size down in your tires because if they start collecting sticky mud, then you need more tire clearance. So a place that doesn't turn in the sticky mud in the rain, then you can run the the tires that you're used to running, nice big fat plump tires, and then that'll give you more suspension built built in to the. T- and they said uh, what it will do though is it'll wash the gravel around a little bit and kind of like the it'll make little runners of like like tiny little creek channel kind of crossings across the road and wash the gravel in and out of those. And it could be kind of loose in there. And so you got to watch out that you don't get your wheels uh, stuck or like thrown out from under you crossing the um, little miniature little valleys that get cut across the road from rain washing stuff out or washing it around. And I got an idea in my mind what they're talking about. Not exactly sure, but I think... They gave that to Kylie for her going away present. I got an idea what that is, and I, I've got plenty of miles at first of trying to stay chill to um, to figure that out. So now I've got now we've done a bunch of background on the race. What is the situation going to be like? <clears throat> and then the other thing is the elevation gain. So one of my pet peeves is whenever they list out races, they never talk about the elevation gain per mile. They always talk about it's this race has 10,000 feet of elevation gain or 2,000 feet of elevation gain. It's like doing Everest three times, you know, it's like you're doing the Continental Divide or something. And the that's all like, okay, fine. But over a really long distance, a lot of elevation gain is can be basically flat. 
And over a short distance, a small amount of elevation gain can actually be really steep. So what I do and what I really suggest everybody does, and I wish they would change this trend in bike racing, is to tell you the elevation gain per mile, feet per mile, or meters per kilometer. I don't know, whatever. And the terrain around where I live is like, if I actually search out hills, is around 30 to 35 feet of elevation gain per mile. And that's relatively mellow rolling. And then if I go out of my way and go to a hilly part of the area just west of me, then I can get 45 to 50 feet per mile if I really work at it. And that's um, pretty steep for around here. And this race, the Gravel Classic, when I took the total elevation gain of 40 or 4,800 or something like that, divided by 65 miles of race, I came up with 73 feet per mile. So it's nearly double the steepness of what I have around. Now, Gravel Locos, which we did just a month ago or so, it was about the same elevation gain as what I deal with around here where I live. So I didn't go out of my way doing any extra hill training. I already ride a ton around here and search out hills already. So I knew I would be fine. And the thing to remember is over a longer bike ride, it's the hills that get you. It's the punchiness of going up and then back down and then back up and overwork because to climb, you got to go harder than what you would do on flat ground. And it's the hills that do you in. So if you train for the hills, you'll actually do better than most people. So knowing that this elevation gain was going to be pretty serious, the next tip is you go back and look at the elevation profile, you know, the side view of what the race course looks like. And what I do is I count how many significant hills there are. And again, like what's the worst hill? And, and then I kind of do some judging and mental math like the the Whistler Canada course was like one monstrous mountain climb, right? So I only need to train to be able to do that once. And then and then it was just regular hills and then actually a long flight. And this course is more typical what you see where the whole course is like big hills, one right after another, after another, after another, after another. And just from experience and looking at the, the hill profile, I'm like basically it's like seven hills. The worst one is 500 feet elevation gain. And 500 feet elevation gain for this one, like 480 for that one. And the next worst one is like 470 and then like 460. And then a couple of these are smaller, but they're right one right after the other. And like immediately and with no break. And so that kind of counts as a hill. And so eventually what I came up with, river, river. If you're going to make noise, just come over here. You can be on the show. Oh, okay. Okay, he just licked the microphone. Uh, for those who don't know, River's the half-German shepherd. He's all black, and he's my running buddy. And like a German shepherd, he's uh, in constant need of attention. Likes to be the center of everything. Uh, so he's perfect for this show. So basically what I came up with is I need to be able to do seven hills of 500 feet each and if i can do 
500 feet elevation gain hills seven times in a row with minimal rest. Just go up and then coast back down and then go up and then coast back down. Then on race day, those will actually be spread out a whole lot more over. I looked at a decent finishing time is four and a half hours. And today, for example, I did five of these hills in just under an hour and a half, right? So I compress them in training. And if I can do seven of these hills in two hours, basically almost the entire elevation of the race in two hours on the trainer using Zwift, which I'll get to in a minute, then on race day, when this is spread out over four and a half hours, um, these hills won't come that fast and I'll have these longer descents and more rest and all this other stuff. So I should be, should, quote unquote, whenever somebody says should, you need to really, that's <laughs> your red flag right there. There's a whole lot more that could go wrong. There's, there's heat, there's mechanicals, there's uh, flat tires uh, crashing because it's going to be technically fast downhill, uh, all that stuff. But if I train for the seven hills of 500 feet elevation gain each, then I'm kind of doing just a, also you want to do just a little bit more in training than what it's going to require on race day. Then on race day, you can actually have fun and then make choices, right? You're not being reactive. You can kind of be proactive because you're a little bit more capable than what the race requires, theoretically. And then that'll take care of actually finishing the race, barring heat exhaustion or whatever. And the next thing, though, is the race is a qualifier for Worlds. And the top 25% of each age group gets to go to Worlds in Europe. Now, will I? if I qualified, would I actually go to Worlds? I don't know. I'm not really that interested in Gravel Worlds per se, unless we get you know, enough people saying, dude, let's go <laughs> and make a whole lot of Zentri content out of it. I mean, that would be pretty cool. But what I've learned from Ironman is it's one thing. Oh, and I've, I've qualified and gone to nationals, qualified a bunch of times, go to uh, triathlon nationals. It's um, actually not that hard to qualify for triathlon nationals. Um, you just got to race a lot and eventually it'll pop up. Hey, you qualified. And then and I've done it and when you do nationals or worlds uh, unless you're gonna win it it's kind of a shit show in that everybody is the exact same speed and by that I mean they're all fast and they're all competitive and you end up being in a scrum this ball of of madness the entire time that's what happened to uh, nationals triathlon uh, Olympic distance in Vermont is it was a blast to go and everything but the race was like there ain't no way I'm gonna win this thing and but what's really cool is to say that you qualified and so this applies to Ironman Hawaii Kona right to qualify for Kona the rest of your life you get to say you're a Kona qualifier that's one thing to actually go to Kona and race thinking that you're going to win your age group or something is such a slightly small chance that uh, you're really just going uh, for the vacation of the whole thing and to experience. And then I think after a couple times, then maybe kind of zero in on trying to win something over there. So looking at previous race results, is, which is something I also highly recommend to get an idea of about how long a race is going to take you. You do not 
assume how long a race is going to take based on the miles or the type of race because the terrain is different the than where you already live. Okay. And the best way to find out about how long the race is going to look for you is to go look at the race results, both um, hot years, cold years, uh, rainy years, dry years, and kind of get an idea of people that your age kind of, and you know how good you are for your age group. Are you kind of a mid-packer? Are you a front lead? Are you just kind of bringing in the uh, the last, bringing up the rear? You're out there kind of party pace, which is a good term that I like. And I haven't really done all those. What I did was I figured out what is the pace for qualifying for Worlds. If I wanted to qualify for Worlds, uh, I need to do about a four and a half hour ride. And that's the top 25%. Those go on to Worlds if they want to pay for that. And four and a half hours to go 65 miles is only 14.5 miles per hour. And I went back and checked the math twice because I was like, are you serious? That is slow. And if that's the time for the top 25%, that means this course is hard. It is going to be steep. And that got me back into the hill training and how I did it on Zwift. And we're going to cover that next, but I need to get off the mic because we're about to get in the car and drive to the airport to Seattle. I'll be right back. All right, we are back. And we are in Seattle. And I thought I'd take a little bit of time away from all the training stuff that I was doing and talk a little bit about the triathlon and gravel news that's going on and other stuff in cycling. And then we'll swing back around to how to do these hill climbs on Alp Do Zwift to get your intervals in. But also, this is our first time to go to Seattle and... We went and saw the Fremont Street troll that lives under the bridge. Saw the Jimi Hendrix statue. And what else did we see, babe? Pike Place Market where they throw the fish. Although we saw no fish throwing. We saw the gum wall, which is freaking gross. <laughs> and everybody knows it and says so. People just stand there in awe at how gross it is. But it, it was worth seeing now that we've seen it. Oh, we saw a naked bike parade that we thought was, you know, just going by, but then it was more and more and more naked people and then lots of body paint and costumes and stuff. And then turns out they were like doing a circuit, like a loop. And that was wild to see that. And yeah, we're eating hamburgers at a at a diner and there's just naked people on bikes down the down at the end of the street riding around. And I mean, it was a party, like it was pretty nuts. <clears throat> and I, we actually took a couple videos because we just couldn't believe it. Everybody's taking pictures and videos. I mean, the people are out there naked on purpose, so I don't, they didn't care. And, um, but I, I can't post that on Instagram. Like I was posting everything else. So I just took like a screenshot of one of the videos from behind and posted that. So you can kind of get an idea on Zen Triathlon. And then, but it, did, it doesn't even begin to, reflect like the the scene that was going on and also went and saw bruce lee's gravesite and brandon lee and that was pretty cool oh yeah and on the way there we ended up in the middle of a crit race <laughs> that was going on 
and it's hilly and wet. And I just could not believe like, you know, doing a crit race and that, but though, although they were riding pretty conservatively, they weren't riding the most extreme that I've ever seen. And plus it was the older group. It was like the 50 to 60. It was the master's group. And those guys usually ride more conservatively. They don't want to break anything. They're done doing that stuff. And we were on Prospect Street, and I think it was Prospect Park, and I've heard so much about Prospect Park, crit racing and such, that that's what I figured it was. And I posted that, and I got comments back that that's not the real Prospect Park. And I think the real Prospect Park that everybody knows about is uh, where they do crit racing is in New York City. So my apologies. And let's see. Yeah, let's do some endurance sports news. There was a tragedy in cycling. Uh, the Tour de Suisse, there was a 26-year-old male pro. No, it was male. That uh, crashed on a downhill, high-speed downhill. And that's the kind of stuff that uh, really freaks me out. If Raise your hand, unless you're driving. If you've ever hit over 50 miles per hour on a bike going downhill. And these guys are... And that's terrifying, one thing. And then another thing, these guys are doing probably 60, 65 at some point. And I remember the first time that I ever did that, the thoughts that started going through my head was like, God, I hope whoever put this bike together knew what they were doing because <laughs> the whole front could come off. And, you know, these guys are riding the most high-end bikes that are tweaked to the max and stuff can go wrong pretty easily. And, yeah, he went off the road into a ditch and then survived into the evening and then died in the hospital. And I was talking to somebody else. We were explaining gravel racing to somebody. And I said, yeah, so if you're going downhill on gravel, you're going so much slower because of the resistance. Anyway, I just really prefer um, not that insane high speed. And I was yeah, you can be going 50 miles an hour and then a deer runs out in front of you, which actually happened to me on a motorcycle when I was doing a hundred and then right after I decided that that was enough, then a deer or a baby cow or something like that just wandered right into the middle of the road, right where I would have been and probably would have killed me. And I was like, okay, that's things to remember. So anyway, it's a big tragedy and that really sucks. But anyway, the other things that are really funny is there's drama in gravel racing there's a couple things that most people don't know about. I mentioned earlier that I heard about by listening to podcasts. And one of them was the female winner of Unbound got into it a little bit with the second place female of Unbound. And it had to do with leaving an aid station. And uh, the woman that ended up winning the race, uh, she had she's from Germany and... Actually, she's 37 years old, which is pretty amazing that she won Unbound. And she was about to give up her bike racing career. And Canyon reached out to her and asked if she wanted to do Unbound, and she did, and then won. But anyway, she was leaving the aid station, and her back was hurting really bad from carrying her bike through the mud earlier in the race. And so she had an ice pack on her back that her crew had given her. And then leaving the aid station, she was riding and then was like, this sucks, this hurts, actually worse, this bike, this ice pack like pressing on her back. So she threw it off and she wasn't in a zone where you can dump trash. And the second place girl 
uh, got mad and said and reported her to the motorcycle judge that was riding with him. And uh, the motorcycle judge made her go back and pick it up. <laughs> and I mean, I get it. I, I've definitely had strong words at people and tried to report people to motorcycle judges when they draft an Ironman. And because I'm trying to qualify for Kona, do the fastest race that I can competitively. And there's people deliberately drafting off of others. And it pisses me off that they're doing that and just making a mockery of the whole thing. And so I I get it, like really competitive like that. And the um, the German girl said that it was just the way that this the other woman like said it that was really mean and um and she went back and picked up her she she went back and picked up the ice pack and then caught back up again with the other female and that's crazy like to actually do a reverse and then still catch back up and then she said it just irritated her it was just the way that the other person said everything that um she dropped her and then beat her by 15 minutes. <laughs> and I'll let you figure out all the names of who's involved with that because I don't, I don't like doing all that. But the, um, just how race tactics can unfold based on emotions and uh, the drama that unfolds. And then that wasn't just the women's race. In the men's race, um, Keegan Swenson, who won, did an interview and I, I maybe it's the trainer road podcast it's also on youtube and it is amazing he goes for an hour answering questions on everything that he did to win and this is you know like an eight nine hour bike race and all the fuel that he used how much water the brands of fuel the the gearing on his bike the tire choices tire size uh, he mentioned that there was a rule change where they could actually wear headphones now. And I saw that on the uh, finish line videos of the race. All three of the top uh, male pros were wearing these uh, shocks, aftershocks headphones like I've got. And these things are amazing because um, you can actually hear while you're listening to stuff. And he said he only used them like about half the time. But then what was crazy is the last aid station, I think it was, he had um, was starting to get a cramp, and he took a shot of this stuff called Hot Shots or something like that. And it's this anti-cramp solution, um, like a little tiny little shot bottle. And I bet you it's like the same size as like a little thing of beet juice or something. And what it's supposed to do is the, the science shows that if something tastes terrible enough like pickle juice with cayenne pepper or something like that, all mixed in together. Mustard, that's why mustard also works, but the vinegary punch of this gross stuff, it distracts your nervous system and it'll make a cramp in your leg go away. It's kind of like uh, if, you're, if your elbow hurts, then uh, jam a stick in your eye and then you'll forget all about your elbow hurting. And it's the same theory and it does work, but... He said he drank a shot of this stuff and then it made him feel so sick to his stomach that he went to the back of the pace line along with everybody else. And you can imagine the pace of this pace line. 
So you got Tour de France racers in there, um, previous champions. So 22 miles an hour probably on gravel. And he um, went to the back of the pace line and threw it up. <laughs> Did you know that, Emily? Did I tell you about that? Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. And the guy doing the interview was like, you what? You went to the back of the line and threw it up and then, st- and then managed to hang on? Imagine like puking. And then imagine hanging on to that pack. And uh, that's what he did. And that's really, really impressive. So I highly suggest people check out that interview. But anyway, that's enough of the triathlon news. Let's get back to how to use WIFT for hill training. So knowing that I needed to do seven repeats of 500 feet, or just let's say any repeats of 500 feet. My go-to for this stuff I've learned is on Zwift, there is a route you can choose called uh, Jungle Circuit, I think. But anyway, it begins with Jungle, something like Jungle Circuit. And what it does is it starts you up at a high altitude-ish, the top of a big hill. And after like a minute or so, maybe two minutes of easy pedaling, then it starts to descend And then basically it just descends and descends and descends and has little doses of level or like 1% uh, hill climb just briefly. And so by the time you get to the intersection for the Alpe d'Huez mountain, you've gotten a 10 minute warm up in, which is just fantastic. And all the, I'm going to do a podcast coming up pretty soon about the best courses in Zwift for high volume athletes, high volume cyclists like us. And this is one of them. You always want to start off because we're so crammed for time. You don't have time to do a warm up and then start your workout. What you want to do is build your warm up into your workout. So pick routes that have a gentle flat or downhill in them for the first 10 minutes. And I've figured out where all of these are. And then then you build in your, your hills and stuff. And it's really difficult to find on Zwift these things because these really Zwift is built for gaming and recreational cyclists, people that only bike, they don't do anything else. So they're all excited every time they get on. They immediately, it's really bad training actually, they immediately get in and start climbing uphill. Like so, like 90% of the courses on Zwift start off going uphill. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So... Or if they are flat, they're just dead flat, and then there's nothing to do at all later on in the workout. So this one, you start the jungle circuit, you got a downhill uh, warm-up, right? And so on this downhill, you can kind of get your act together. you be like, oh, I put my water bottle over here. Oh, I need to tighten up my shoe. You can kind of settle in, get your, start getting your heart rate up, and so your power starts coming up. And then as you hit the right-hand turn, for Alp de Zwift, then it's level for about a minute, and then it starts to climb. And what's so cool is it shows on the left-hand side, It's there might be another mountain that has this. Uh, there's a Mount Ventoux in Zwift as well. I don't know if it does it, but the Alp de Zwift literally shows the different segments and your average, pow- your current and average power and average heart rate on the left side of the screen as you're climbing. And what I did was by the time I got to the bottom, I, it was like 
17 feet of elevation gain because I've been going downhill, you know, for like 10 minutes. So starting off at 17 feet of elevation gain, uh, maybe it was 117, but it doesn't matter. I was like, okay, that plus 500. And at the top of the screen on Zwift, it shows your elevation gain for the ride. And so let's say it was 117 feet is where I started. And then bang, it kicks off. And then it's showing your power down your left side. And I'm watching the elevation gain. So all I have to do is 117 plus 500. And that would be 617 feet. So I ride and I'm doing kind of medium cadence, mixing in a little bit of low cadence, watching my power, watching my heart rate. And I'm climbing, and by the time, I w- if you know the course, that's a little bit of open, and then you go through a tunnel, and then as you come out of the tunnel, there's a little bit more open, and then a left-hand turn, and that's the end of the first two segments of Alpe de Zwift. And that ended up, right as you go through the second segment, that ended up being the f- 500 feet of elevation gain that I needed, because it said so at the top of the screen, which is so handy, and then you hit the down key on your keyboard or whatever you're using on your bike on the, to control Zwift. And your rider will do a U-turn. And then so he does a U-turn. And it took me 10 minutes to make this climb. About. It kind of varies. And then to coast back down, it's three minutes. To coast back down and then start again. you got to coast back down and then do a U-turn and pedal really easy. So it replicates exactly what you need for real hill training outside. If you were to go climb the perfect hill outside and do intervals on it, you would ride up it the distance that you need to go to get the stimulus, the dosing that you need to get a slight improvement for an interval. And then you would coast back down and then you would do it again. You coast back down and then you do it again. You coast back down and you do it again. And, you know, some people would be like, this sucks. This is not fun. This is not a real bike ride or what I want to do. But you have to decide, do you want to perform? Are you training for a race or are you just out on a joy ride? And if you want to do well in in an event, then you need to train specifically for that event. And in specific or unspecific training gets you, uh, well, random training gets you random results. (laughs) And specific training gets you very specific results. So you can dial in exactly what you want. And the first time I did it, um, just under a week ago, I think, I did three of these climbs of 500 feet. And it's nice. On the coast downhill, you refuel, you drink a little bit of water, and your guy's hitting like 50 miles an hour on the downhill, but no crashing, which is nice. And then you turn around, and I did it just fine. And... But I know just starting off that I'm just going to do three. And then a few days later, I did five and did it. And and I'm watching my power numbers and my heart rate. And it looks like mid-130s heart rate uh, gives me around 265 watts average, maybe 270. Kind of depends. And then tomorrow, hopefully, when we get back to Texas and I have the day off from work, I'm going to do, yeah, I'm off tomorrow. And then I'm going to do seven. So two more intervals. So three, five, and seven. And that 
should give me my seven that I need. And that's on Monday. And then the race is on Saturday. So that'll give me uh, days to taper. What I'll do is I'll run a little bit, swim a lot. And that'll keep my mind busy and I can work on my bike and kind of avoid biking after that. So I'm nice and fresh for this race. And that's the trick is Alpe de Zwift uh, hill repeats. And one of the other reasons I pick Alpe de Zwift is <laughs> you have to be really, really, really good to do Alpe de Zwift in an hour, the, the entire mountain. And you're almost never going to do an interval that lasts an hour. So it's perfect. Like uh, outdoors where I live, the longest hill that I know of is like a three-minute hill, and it's not even really that steep. And it's a highway with no shoulder, and there's actually an intersection at the bottom. So when you're coming back down, you're going to hit that intersection, and it's just no good for that. I cannot find a 500-foot, 10-minute climb uh, anywhere near where I live. So I just do it virtually on Zwift. And, yeah, that's it. Okay, so... That's my advice on how to do hill climbing on Zwift to train specifically for the races that you have coming up. I hope that helps out. And now that we got that all done, let's go ahead and move on over to the training log. I've got some bike riding and the heat a lot with Kai. It's a lot of fun and fueling and hydration and all kinds of tips like that. All right, let's hit it. You are entering the Zentrite training log zone. Hi everybody, my name is Brett, I'm a trap. I decided it's time I got some friends more suited to my status. But Joe, we've been friends for years. Hey, we all make mistakes. Come on dudes, let's go exercise! Exercise! Yeah! I'm gonna do sit-ups till I poop myself! All right, finishing our morning run. Rabbit patrol with river. Stop the watch. There we go. It is Thursday morning. Nice, hot, humid run. Listening to a podcast that was really informative. I learned something, or got a good idea from these guys. It's training for the time-crunched cyclist, I think is the name of the podcast. Anyway, they have a coach on there. And he suggested that people use the newer style cycling shorts. River stopping to inspect a spot right here. Okay, good. You peed on it. Good. You dominated the dojo. So that these cycling shorts that have pockets on them. And the reason why is as you get tired towards the end, this has happened to me so many times, reaching around to your back pocket to grab stuff. Reaching around behind you, you can get into shoulder cramps. Happened to me last weekend. So you don't have to use it the whole race, but as the race goes on, start shoving gels or whatever you put into those pockets. Aerodynamically, if they stick out to the side, that's bad. I wonder if they make cycling shorts pockets that are on the back of your hamstring. Because, and then I have arm warmers, I forgot who makes them, that have little pockets on them, on the upper arm. You would put those behind your upper arm. Anything that's a cylinder, you want to disrupt that shape into an oblong shape. So if you had socks, high socks, put your gels behind your calf. You'll be way faster. And that reminds me, 
I did the water bottle down the front of the jersey thing last weekend on both rides and it worked. I could definitely feel a difference in speed as I was cutting through the wind. And then you may be saying, oh, I'm not fast enough. I don't ride low enough to worry about that kind of stuff. The thing is, is it works more the more upright you ride. Because the more upright you ride, your chest is hitting the wind. And if you have the air, the water bottle in front, it um, splits the wind a little bit better around you. And then I wear a camelback, so then it helps the wind wrap around the back, too. All right, we are done. Oh, man, it is hot. I'm going to have a drink to cool down and then head to W to the ERK. All right, I'm back. It's only been a couple minutes in the backyard cooling down. But I remembered a couple more things. If you work out in the morning and then need to get to work or something like that, it is so helpful and so much more calming and relaxing to have your stuff together the night before or and or you have your stuff organized so that you're not searching for things it's the searching not finding but the searching the time wasted gets you more and more and more frustrated looking for a pair of socks looking for your running shorts looking for your fuel looking for your running visor i don't know yeah your running shoes and everything to have you don't have to have it all in one spot you know you just need to know where they are and in a household with two other people stuff gets put away put in different places it is so so frustrating so the night before if you can locate everything is one thing and then you know put it in another all together i mean that's kind of nice because then you start visualizing you know your race and your run the next day or your bike or your swim for example i keep all my swim gear in my truck i don't ever have to locate it i know exactly where it is the current battle in our house is emily likes to put away all the fuel stuff and then she puts it down low in the pantry in kind of a random order and then i like to keep it on the kitchen counter pushed up against the counter where i can see it and i'm tall so getting stuff way going into the pantry turn on the light digging around looking for the stuff this is so frustrating, <laughs> but we all have our own personal battles. Uh, she keeps the house way more organized than I ever would, so I can't complain too much. And then another really cool thing is, oh, it, uh, years ago, I sat down and figured that that was like the biggest hang-up in me getting my training done. And so I have specific drawers for training socks, for training jerseys, you know, for all the training clothes, running shorts. They all go in particular places. So all I have to do is go to that spot and then train myself and others in the house to put things in those spots. And then there's so much time saved in the morning getting stuff together. There's a weird thing where if you don't really feel like training, but you're going to and you, you need to, half of you wants to, the other half doesn't, the ritual of getting stuff together kind of gets you going. You know, So making your cup of coffee, sitting down and putting on your shoes and all that's kind of nice. And mixing your fuel, I found. Drinking coffee and mixing your fuel is the ritual that gets me kind of... Or if I take my time doing that, then um, I kind of get in, into the mood a whole lot more. I guess it's probably giving coffee time to work as well. Anyway, and then the other thing is, man, this running flask. And I have it right in front of me. This is just a game changer for me. I should do a podcast on game about 16 ounces of water. And then there's two water fountains on my run. 
and the ability to carry that much water in the pocket of my running shorts and, and then stop and top off the water or take a drink from the water fountain or both um, along the run has just taken the stress edge off of my morning runs in the heat, probably my afternoon, evening ones as well. And it's just great. I cannot recommend this enough, the soft-sided flasks. Anyway, okay, now let's get off this mic and see. Oh, no, there's another thing <laughs> that crossed my mind. Um, I run in the morning, and sometimes I can tell there's a difference of how stiff my legs are. And I've come to a theory that if I bike lightly the night before, that stretches things out. And then the next morning, I actually run faster. Biking usually compromises your run, but if biking loosens up your legs, sends you to bed, not all stiff and tight, and makes it easier to wake up uh, looser in the morning, then you can get your morning run, or vice versa, I guess, if you flip it throughout the day. But it also has a lot to do with how hard you bike. And because these sports complement each other, you got to look at the big picture. So biking some is better than nothing, and then having loose legs for your run is better than having stiff legs. Okay, I think that was it. All right, let's get out of here. I gotta get to the orifice. Out, bang. All right, we are back. It is Friday morning, getting in the Zentri Mobile Studios. Nice swim. Let's fire up. White Ram truck. <laughs> Interesting turn of events. Let's see, yesterday evening, the baby bird's nest that is on our front door. We moved it off to the side a little bit, you know, weeks ago. But there was a, a bird on the ground running around and I posted on Instagram, I managed to catch it and have it resting on my baseball hat and then tried to put it back in the nest. I thought it might be the parent, it definitely wasn't the baby. And it jumped off and then kept on cruising around. Come to find out, this is a great thing about social media. This is what social media should be used for. You share your adventures and then ask other people for their insight. I asked, what, what's going on? Is this the parent bird that's playing that game where it tries to distract predators and run around and run, run all over the place? And somebody chimed in and said, no, it's, the, uh, it's just another local juvenile bird that's learning how to fly and its parents are around somewhere. So that's kind of cool. That's on Instagram at Zen Triathlon. And then this morning, well, I biked the past couple nights, half an hour one night, I think it was Wednesday night, and then, no, 40 minutes Wednesday night, and then increased it by five minutes, little incremental things, which is what you should do to get up to the volume you want. And then, yeah, I did 45 last night on Zwift. That's Thursday night. Wednesday night, I just watched videos on YouTube. I didn't feel like getting Zwift all set up for a short ride. And then this morning, getting to the pool, I had everything all organized, like I just said in the previous little blip that we had, and still somehow managed to <laughs> be late. But just imagine how much more late I would be if I didn't have my stuff all organized. And so I was in a bit of a rush and it wasn't too bad until I left the house and then realized I had not taken my Simba court. I have asthma really bad and I quit taking allergy shots 
five, six, seven years ago because they stopped working. It definitely fixed me. And then the allergy shots, you know, kind of peaked out. And the last visit with my regular doctor, she said, I I told her I was having trouble climbing flights of stairs and then losing air at uh, two flights of stairs. And it's really weird because it's not happening to people around me. And then people around me like laugh and they're like, aren't you like the ultra distance runner? Don't you run like a million miles or something? And I said, yeah, it's weird. I don't know what's going on. I'm in really good shape. Uh, the thing is with ultra distance, long distance, triathlon, whatever, you warm up a long time, especially the older you get, you warm up. So the asthma doesn't bother me because usually I take 10, 15 minutes to warm up. But when you're just walking along a parking lot and then bam, hit a flight of stairs and going up, uh, and at, you know, 200 plus pounds, six foot three, climbing up a flight of stairs, lugging your, your clothes, your food, everything. It just apparently like hits too hard and it makes me short of breath. It's pretty crazy. And my doctor said, I said, I don't know, do I have like some kind of long COVID, you know? And she said, no, that's, that's asthma. I said, oh, okay, maybe, I guess. So got a prescription for Simbacort. Simbacort is like once a day. I haven't Googled it to see what the side effects are yet. I'll do that after a while, I guess. I've been doing it for a couple of weeks and it really does help. It seems I'm having way less symptoms of that. But anyway, I left the house this morning and got around the block and realized I've forgotten my Simbacort. <laughs> and it was worth it to go back. I'm trying to stay on top of it. And so I go back and get it and then take off again. And now I know I've got things timed, you know, like what exactly what time do I need to leave the house to get my swim in and still get out of the pool in time and get to work on time. So I know that if I leave at whatever o'clock exactly on the minute, it's going to be tight. So I kind of in a rush to make up time to get to the pool in time and then I get to the pool and then the lanes are full so I got to split a lane with somebody and there is a big difference between uh, swimming by yourself solo in a lane which is very relaxing and clean and glide and you can kind of just settle into things versus swimming in a lane with other people if you want to work on your stroke and technique (laughs) try to swim in a lane by yourself and uh, I grew up swimming, you know, six people in a lane, stuff like that. So I'm I'm both spoiled that I usually have my own lane, but I'm also not spoiled in that I've done years and years and years of being crammed into swimming lanes and fighting over each other. I can, I can do a flip turn with three people standing at a wall in the same lane easily, for example. Anyway, the first half of my swim was just real rough. The guys I was sharing lanes with was like a real smooth, uh, slow, older swimmer. No, no big wake, no big chunky stuff, but we were up against a wall on one side and that makes more chop. And I noticed like I was not having fun swimming. It wasn't terrible or anything. I was just like, nah, this is, I'm kind of all over the place. And I was looking at my pace and it's kind of crappy. I was surprised. It was a few seconds or a couple seconds slower than um, I expected. And then that guy left. 
at about 20, 25 minutes into my swim. And then I noticed, uh, you know, of course it cleaned up nice and smooth. And then 30 minutes into the swim on the dot, all of a sudden it just got really relaxed and just cruise along nice and easy. And I could work on technique and smooth. And I'm like, ah, that's what I'm looking for. And man, the long sets where you kind of get lost in the time. So my sets take about 12 minutes each. And I just, every few flip turns, I look at my watch to see what lap I'm on. And man, you get lost in thought. And it's just so great. And what I've found, sorry, I've got something rattling. I've got a cooler with my food in it for the day. What I've found is that that lost in thought time what you should do that really benefits you the most is think about your future workouts as your next workout that's coming up and the rest of your day and a little bit in tomorrow and visualize it that's the whole point you visualize it okay i'm going to run tonight okay so if i run tonight yeah okay oh yeah i need to find my running shoes and make this fuel and stuff and if psychologically they teach this in high level coaching psychologically if you imagine they have you go through races and imagine them everything you're going to do and then you've kind of solved all the problems as uh, they could pop up and then you just go through the motions so if you're doing a it's this they do this especially in swimming because it's so short you're doing a hundred yard freestyle you visualize over and over and over and over again like in a dark room with your eyes closed and a coach like talking you through it you know you get your stuff ready you have a, a warm-up swim and it goes perfectly and then now they call you up and then you get up on the block and you swing your arms to open them up da 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 then the gun goes off and you dive in perfectly and then you know the first half of the swim da, 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 and as you get closer to the wall you start timing it so that you hit the wall with the perfect arm stretch right so you go through it over and over and over again. But what it does is it helps you also for just regular training and working out and your work day and everything. If you visualize the day ahead, then you start to piece together the items that you need to get the day done. And then when you're actually doing it, you just go through the motions and it's really just the best. All right, I got to go in to W to the ERK because I visualize that once I go in, I'm going to have a bowl of cereal. <laughs> All right. Let's get out of here. All right, we are at the end of a gravel turnaround at the end of a paved road. I'm behind Santa's Wonderland, if you ever want to look that up. There's this nice little road that goes behind there. And taking a bathroom break and feeling my front tire. It's still leaking a little bit. This front tire I've got, I do not recommend. What is it? WTB. Anyway, I can't figure out what it is. It's got such understated logos, I can't read them. Oh, Venture, 50 millimeter. The tread is so fine with the tiniest little knobs, I can't find where punctures are to plug them. And I've got like three or four punctures on this thing. And I've plugged one, maybe two, but then, you know, where it's got the cut for where it's currently leaking, I just can't find it because there's so many these thin little things and I don't know what the rolling resistance is on this anyway
probably not very good, but I've got another tire on order. I've got the Specialized, maybe Pathfinder Pro. It's got the solid center tread, so that'll help a lot. Uh, the thing I was going for was a 48. I wanted to size down a little bit, so I got a little bit more mud clearance on the front. And it is a 47. But they always differ, like when you actually put them on and then measure them. Anyway, it's going to be a hot, hot, windy day. Extremely humid. Heat index is going to be 100 degrees. And I started at like 8.15. And I'm just 30 minutes in. I thought I'd record a little bit early on and then how it goes. And take breaks on purpose, actually, to record so I can reassess things. I had something funny happen the other day. Somebody at work... We were talking about bike riding and they, they commute by bike and, and uh, you know, just a, a city cyclist so far. And they said, I'm not into racing. I don't, I just like to do my own speed. And I said, uh, I said something that kind of revealed something about myself too. You know, a lot of times when you put things, when you write things down or have to put things in words, you, when you have to consolidate your thoughts and put them into action, then you realize what they actually are. And I said, yeah, I do the uh, short distance sprint things on occasion for fun. I like to do time trial stuff and race a little bit of the short stuff. But I did a ton of that when I was young. And as you get older, you're not so good at that anymore, except for against people your own age. But what's funny is... With ultra distance, long distance, Ironman, even half Ironman, it's how fast can you go without trying? <laughs> so zone two is barely trying. And how fast could you actually complete the distance without putting much effort into it or the minimal amount of effort? It's all about efficiency. And I love it. I think it's so cool. And there's two reasons why is a lot of times if you're going really far, that is the fastest way. And then... The other thing is, is you've got a life, man. So you want to get back to it uh, tomorrow, get back to work, get back to your family, get back to friends. And if you're destroyed because you're uh, racing, then you don't really uh, return back to normal without a lot of recovery. So for an example would be a marathon mountain bike race, which takes three, four hours. And yeah, you try hard on the uphills, but everything else, you just try to keep it kind of mellow and you watch your heart rate and then whatever time you finish is the time you finish and you compare yourself against yourself like was I actually faster this time uh, this year than I was last year uh, with better training uh, same effort you know but were you actually faster people a lot of people don't understand that that with good training you get faster and faster without trying hard so it's always zone two feels the same and I learned this from Rich Roll doing Ultraman. The goal is to get so fast so that your easy is pretty fast. And then at Ultraman, at the start line, everybody starts off slow-ish, kind of medium. And then it's who slows down the least. That's actually what you want to do, is you want to keep up an even pace. So it's a game of wits of keeping up. What's your even pace? And create an even pace through training that makes you pretty fast and you hear this about like with people that train right which would be pros their easy pace is way faster 
than a lot of people's hard pace. And that's how they survive and win the long distance stuff. But anyway, I'm going to get started here again, just taking a little bit of break and assessing the situation. It's going to get hot. I'm doing three and a half hours. All right, out. All right, I am back. I'm about <clears throat> an hour later in. I'm at the end of a gravel road and the beginning of a busted up asphalt and concrete slab road that's really, really old. <clears throat> I've had several thoughts cross my mind. One, I passed a roadie and he was on a titanium light speed, a little bit of an older bike, caliper brakes. But even on a gravel bike with the fat tires, the fact I had aero bars, we were both riding into a headwind, is uh, I passed him. And he looked like about my age, about my fitness, looked decently into this kind of stuff. And was moving along at a good clip. But as we triathletes know, that shows the benefits of aero bars. I would tuck in and just gain on them easily without trying very hard. It's really, really nice. And... I tend to ride aero bars about 70% of the time. I don't ride them when I'm riding uphill. I don't ride them when I'm riding with a nice tailwind. And then that leads to something else. My next race is in Arkansas. It's a gravel race, 65 miles long, and it's 90% gravel. Uh, this route I'm on here is like 30 to 40% gravel, for example. And it's pretty much champagne gravel. And I've noticed that when I do rough stuff, my hands aren't ready for that. And you should always be optimizing your training for your next race. And I'll have a tailwind. I'm at my return point. And I'll have a tailwind most of the way back. So I'm going to probably ride on the hoods, even though I don't want to, most of the way back on purpose instead of the arrow bars to beat up my hands and arms a little bit so that they're tougher for race day. And also with the heat, oh wait, let me back up. I was thinking about riding this stretch of road that's, I haven't ridden in a long while, but it's really flat. And this race in Arkansas is going to be really hilly. So I'm actually going to scratch that. I'm going to ride the hilly stuff and the more heavier gravelly stuff instead. I was looking to do the flat stuff, you know, to stay in a nice even heart rate. But again, there's base training and then there's sharpening the blade for your next race and doing more race specific stuff <clears throat> for your next event. And the other thing is looking at the wind direction, there's this one hill that I get cooked on and I'll probably be recording again there. And the strategy there that a lot of people don't know is People stop, they work themselves to death climbing a hill. And then they have to stop at the top of the hill. <laughs> right? That's actually not the fastest way to do something. What you do is you ride up the hill until you get tired and then stop partway up the hill. Take your break there. Partway up the hill. And then, so let's say it's a three minute break. Right? And then when you get back on the bike, you're really well rested. You'll go over the top and you'll be able to continue on riding and recover on the downhill on the other side of that uphill so you've done three minute break total you've climbed the hill actually fresher and faster and then you're downhill you're resting you're going pretty much the same speed you would have anyway or even uh, faster 
So compare that to going uphill the entire hill and then getting slower and slower and slower as you get to the top and then blowing up pretty much at the top of the hill. Then you need a four to five minute break at the top of the hill. So now you've added a couple extra minutes and now you're really toasted for the next hill and you keep repeating that and eventually you're just destroyed. So I found through uh, training and practice to uh, stop halfway up a hill along one of your longer hills, find a shade tree, stop there and then regain yourself. And that's if you're having trouble or it's a hill that you time. Oh, also there's another thing. If on your long rides or runs, you're going to time a break, you know, it's going to be at an hour in or whatever, do it exactly where I just said, either right before a hill or halfway up a hill. That's where you time your breaks. And then when you're done with your break and you start running again, you'll be running up that hill nice and fresh right after that. And also in the shade. Okay, that's it. I'm listening to a nice podcast. It's making it very relaxed. I've got my hard alarm set to 138, I think. If I go over that, I'm going too hard. And I'm just cruising, chilling, because tomorrow i got another bike ride with Kai. And he's probably going to kill me. <laughs> so we'll see. All right, be right back. All right, I am on the Hill of Doom and my temperature gauge on my bike computer read out 102 degrees before I hopped over into the shade where I am right now. You can hear the cicadas, tree frogs. It is full sun, really brutal, but I'm having the time of my life. This is so great. And a lot of it has to do with starting off easy and not cooking myself early and backing off the pace right from the beginning because I knew it was going to get hot. It totally helps carrying extra water. I have a water stop in about 30 minutes, 40 minutes. I can get more water and pacing myself going really, really easy. And then I also had another thought. There's actually a way for me to get back to my house by riding a Jeep trail and I never do that because to get there, I ride a section of highway with no shoulder, with a high speed limit. I don't like it. But I do that already at another spot <laughs> to go the other way. And it's got a lot of blind corners. At least this one doesn't. So I think for the adventure of it, and I'm having so much fun, I'm going to ride through the mountain bike ranch on the Jeep trail to get back to the main road. And it's going to be really, really cool. I'm having a really good time. But I don't think I'm going to do much more than that. Because there's another out and back I could take. Add some more miles. Because this will be slow. Oh, and that reminds me. I've lost air pressure in the front tire due, uh, due to a tire leak. But it's, it's lower than what I would normally ride. And it's glorious. It's so soft. I bet it's about 30 PSI. And it's wonderful. We really do ride with way too much PSI in our tires. There's a car. And I was down by Hidalgo Falls. You can Google it. Hidalgo Falls on the Brazos River. And another, another guy was riding and a husky was following him. And I said, is that your dog? And he said, no. And it had no regular tags, but it had an Apple Air tag. So I got my phone really close to it. Hopefully the people it belongs to um, will find it on a map. And then we made sure it stayed there. 
And there's some people down there at the end of the road, so it's probably it probably belongs to some people. But it was kind of cute. I took a picture of it. And yeah, gotta get back on the bike. Gotta keep going. Nice and easy. Oh, the strategy. What happens is, is in the drops, I'm fine with my hands. In the arrow bars, obviously, I'm fine with my hands. It's when I ride on the hoods. And you ride on the hoods when it's technical, kind of like level or downhill technical. And you want to sit more upright so you don't go over the bars. And that's what gets you. So that's what I'm making sure I'm doing. And, I'm, and I could tell, like, it's working my hands pretty good. And that's the other reason I'm riding the mountain bike trail is because that'll do the same. That's a rough, technical... It's a Jeep trail. Rough, technical. Uh, it'll really work my hands. I noticed last week or the week before when I did it two days in a row, my hands were just blown out. And it was really good uh, training. So that's the other reason I'm doing it. All right, let's go. All right, we are back. It's now Sunday morning. I'm with the amazing and handsome Kai Blankner. How's it going? It's going good. It's getting a little toasty out here. Yeah, Kai's in a hurry because you rode yesterday afternoon and decided it was way too hot. And then... We're starting an hour earlier than what I started yesterday, and it's definitely way cooler. Like, it's so smart. And, uh, yeah, we're going to try to do about four hours today and get it done before it gets afternoon. I think we'll be done by noon. Yeah, we could be done by noon if I quit stopping and recording. And it poured rain overnight, so we're going to have to alter the course a little bit, try to stay on better gravel and pavement and how you feeling uh legs are a little sore from the past few days of training but keeping it a little easy staying with you good so. i want you to be sore and then kai's uh, gravel bike has a wheel issue so he's riding his super fast mountain bike which i'm also glad about because that'll slow him down so we can ride about the same pace it'll be fun we've already seen some deer rabbits a squirrel that was trying to get in the highway and yeah, let's go. I'll catch back up as uh, we go along. Oh, yesterday afternoon, it got to 104 on this mountain bike trail I was on, on my bike computer. And then I went back and looked at the relative humidity, 60% humidity. So there's an online calculator where you can type in heat plus uh, humidity and get what the, the um, heat index is, feels like, is what they're trying to change that wording to. And it was 145 degrees is what it felt like on that trail. And I was about to puke. And on the website, I posted it on Zentriathlon on Instagram. You can see the screenshot and it says, uh, extreme danger, heat stroke is imminent. (laughs) And I kept stopping. And the problem is, is in the woods, there's no breeze. So I would stop in the shade, but I would just sit there and cook. And it it's way better if you could find like an open area to get some breeze. All right. So that's our plan. If we stop today, we got to make sure there's a breeze. Cool. Cool. Cool breeze. <laughs> that's what one of my friends says is my nickname. Cause I always know where there's a cool breeze. There's a cool breeze right here. See, I'm pointing at it right there. All right, let's go. All right. We are an hour and 36 minutes in mile something 27 temperatures only 80 degrees. We had overcast skies roll in, which has been really nice, but the blue's starting to come through again. So we're going to make this one real short. We're at the end of Old Highway 6, the very, very south end of it, where it used to have a bridge that goes over to Navasota. The old farmer here told me one time he came pulling up in a golf cart or a four-wheeler thing, 
and told me there's an old bridge down there that used to go through. How you feeling, Kai? Good. I just uh, possibly, allegedly peed. And it's a little darker than I'd like. I need to keep drinking a lot of fluids because I'm still dehydrated from yesterday. And I did a trick that a lot of people don't know about is you can pre-salt before your ride. You can load up on sodium before you go out when you're drinking your morning coffee and all that stuff. So I did uh, 500 milligrams of sodium before I, um, along with my coffee and my carbonated water and stuff like that to help hold on to the water as I drink it. What are you listening to, Kai? Can, can you say what? Lil Uzi Vert. Uzi Vert? Lil. Lil? Uzi. Uzi? Vert. Vert. Is it just like a Rolodex? They just pick names? Yeah. Just kind of randomly? Yeah. How you feeling on your bike? Good. A little slower than you going downhill, but other than that, I'm keeping up with you pretty Yeah. Good. I'm going faster downhill. You're going faster uphill. It's nice. It's kind of fun. All right. All right. Uh, let's see. I guess we just keep going. Everything's working out so far. <laughs> We're surrounded by crops, and there's a, a whole bunch of red-shouldered blackbirds, and they get territorial and will dive bomb you as you go by. So they're not as big as the ones in Australia that will actually injure you, but it's pretty crazy. All right, let's go. All right, this will probably be the last time we record during the ride because it's going to start getting really hot. We're at the railroad crossing at the end of White Switch Road. Uh, I took off my eyeglasses to put on sunscreen and then uh, 30 seconds later stepped on them and bent the frames. So that's fun. It's a hidden cost of cycling. But we're stopping because Kai wanted to put on gloves. What's up? You had to go to the bathroom. No, you. No, I went to the bathroom after you started putting on gloves. Whatever. Why? Is it not cool to wear gloves? No, my hands are getting sweaty and uh, my hands are slight grips. Oh, I thought that's not possible. So you got on uh, Orange Seal gloves. You're sponsored by Orange Seal. Texas Devo sponsored Texas by Orange Devo. Seal. The team. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. All right, I just got sunscreen in my mouth and it tastes like crap. So I'm going to wash out my mouth. And we're going to keep going. We're two hours in. We've got another two hours. It's about to get really hot. Let's go. All right, it is Monday morning. We lived through the bike ride. <laughs> Boy, it was something. And I'm leaving the pool. Dream come true when that actually happens. Monday morning swim. That means I recovered enough to get up and get going. Although it's just a tiny bit late. Hold on just a second. The locker room to the pool is so unbearably hot. I have to finish getting cleaned up and changed outside in the parking lot. There we go. Using the back of the pickup truck as a table. Just lifted up the tailgate. And... Also, I threw out the muck off wet lube. It is great while it's wet, but the minute that you're done with it, you cannot get that stuff off your drivetrain, it seems to me. And it just gunks up your drivetrain for months. It's pretty insane. All right, let's get going here. Of course, because we're recording a podcast that sends a message out to everybody taking care of yards to fire up their equipment. I'm going to drink a carbonated water here. Hold on. Oh, yeah. So the ride yesterday with Kai ended up going really well. 
because we started an hour earlier than the day before, which the day before just about melted me into place. And also the last stretch of road that we took going with the wind, we we were on paved road instead of, oh, I need to get gas. Instead of Jeep trail uphill and sand and soft dirt because it rained. It rained so much the night before. We knew that that course would be just off limits. And, oh my gosh. The effect of us finishing sooner before the heat built up. And then also, I hydrated before the ride... I think, like I said, I did um, I did my usual two cups of coffee to wake up in the morning, but then I drank a carbonated water and also ate a teaspoon, no, quarter teaspoon, teaspoon, shoot, I don't remember, of sodium citrate. I'd have to look to see what my measurement is, but it ends up being 500 milligrams. I just took the wrong turn. <laughs> Man, I am not thinking today. So I started out the ride plumped up and more hydrated and also I made sure I drank cold water before we got started. Drinking hot coffee and then going out on a ride in the heat is a great way to have way too much body temperature. Which reminds me, one of your biggest limiters in training and racing is uh, your body core heat and your body core temperature. and. I need to start thinking about a plan to have my camelback full of ice water for the race at Arkansas. Kai's really interested in the Usui camelbacks. After seeing all the pros using them, and after he and I saw the video on um, how they're actually faster than than going without a backpack of some sort, a camelback of some sort. I've known this for a very long time. And Kai is finally getting used to me sending him on occasion, about once a day, once every couple days, a link to some sort of testing results or whatever that show what makes you faster. It's all about marginal gains. And speaking of marginal gains... The last hour of our bike ride, no, the last uh, 30, 40 minutes of our bike ride, actually. Going into that, there's a section of pavement with medium to mild downhill and (laughs) a tailwind on the ride on Sunday. And it was getting towards the end. And Kai, if you remember, was on his mountain bike. And gravel bike has just slightly more top-end gearing. And we were going on a slight downhill, and he was ahead of me. So I put the hammer down, passed him, swung out to the side so he couldn't latch on. And then left him in the wind all by himself. And just put the hammer down, kind of medium to medium hard, more on the medium side. And just got super arrow. And when he finally caught me, yeah, like 20 minutes later, <laughs> I felt bad for him. He was so far behind me, working so hard. 
he said that he just ran out of gears. Which is a thing that you'll see the top-end elites and, and pros do in all kinds of cycling sports is they have bigger gearing on purpose because that's a tactic that people use to break away is if you can get on a downhill, have bigger gearing, swoop to the side, surprise your competition, and leave them hanging in the in the air all by themselves, and you can get more slightly more arrow, then you'll slowly create a gap. And once that gap's big enough, it's too big and too much work for the other person to overcome, and then they run out of gearing. <laughs> and it's a thing. It's pretty cool. So that was fun. Got back to the house, jumped in the pool, cooled down, and started cleaning the pool and drinking a beer and felt uh, really hungry the rest of the day, but also really good the rest of the day. And that was just fantastic. And back to the uh, staying cool on the hot workouts. Yeah, your limiter, limiter, while racing, turns out a whole lot of it is body core temperature. And I've done this plenty. Long rides with my camelback frozen. And then what you get is a drip of ice water most of the ride. And it is amazing. It makes such a huge difference. And all these companies are trying to sell stuff that is like frozen gels and this and that. And I'm just telling you, dude, one thing you can do, take your camel back. Definitely don't fill it up all the way. (laughs) Because when it turns to ice, it'll explode your bladder. But fill it up about two-thirds of the way. Let that sucker freeze overnight. And by the way, you should be putting your camel back. If you have any kind of sugary anything in your camel back, any kind of fluids that have... uh, fuel in it that stuff's going to go nasty and turn the mold in there and the easiest way to keep your camel bag clean and your water bottles if you use the same water bottle a bunch of times in a row in a row is to throw it in the freezer and then as you're getting ready that's one of the first things you pull out of the freezer i'm gonna pull over right here and put on my shirt before i go in hey that worked that was pretty nice had air conditioning on my no shirt tor- torso all the way to the to the office to the orifice, and the AC was cooling me off. Now I feel way cooler. Drink a cold carbonated water. Anywho, those are the strategies of uh, staying cooler on a hot ride. The trick, though, is then what are you going to do for your electrolytes if you're keeping your electrolytes separate from your big water bladder? Maybe load them all into a different water bottle and, and sip on them as needed so you get the correct amount of electrolytes per liter of water. Anyway, I was able to get up this morning a little bit sluggish because I woke up in the middle of the night after having a really weird dream. And we're here. Cross check. And that kept me up for a couple hours. And that made waking up actually pretty difficult now my now i needed actually a little bit more sleep because i've been up for a couple hours in the middle of the night but anyway that's it
Home.